One of the things that some people point to as a possible indication that our education system is declining is the decline of math scores among students in our schools. It goes without saying that a person who is properly educated should know, among other things, basic facts of mathematics. That would include addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. I mention them in that order because that is typically the order in which the subjects are learned. Addition is usually learned first, and it is a skill that most people use for the rest of their lives. Regardless of your occupation or your vocation, you probably use addition most days of your life. For example, you may be adding up how long it's going to take you to do a certain task. You may be adding up items that you have in your shopping cart to have an estimate of how much it's going to cost. We use addition a lot in the natural ebb and flow of life, but there is also a spiritual kind of addition talked about in Scripture, and it is very, very important to our Lord. It's found in our text in 2 Peter chapter 1, so let's turn there together, please, over near the end of your New Testament to the second letter of the Apostle Peter called 2 Peter. Please follow along as I read verses 1 through 7, part of which will be our text for our time in the Word this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we have seen in the past couple of messages, the Apostle Peter wrote this letter as a warning for Christians. Here in this letter, he warns about false teachers and the potential those false teachers have to do two things. Number one, false teachers can influence unbelievers away from the truth and toward a Christless eternity. And number two, False teachers can influence believers away from the truth and toward a life of stagnant spiritual growth. Peter was concerned that neither happened, which is why he wrote this letter. Here in chapter 1, his primary focus is on believers and the importance of staying strong in the truth 
for the purpose of spiritual growth. That's exactly what we see in the verses we just read. Peter tells us in verses 3 and 4 that the Lord has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, the Lord has given us everything we need to be able to live a fruitful, godly life. He has given us a transformation within called the new birth. He has given us the resident Holy Spirit to strengthen us. He has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. He has given us deliverance from the corruption that is in the world. So we have all we need to live a life of godliness. As a result of all of this, Peter exhorts us to move forward in growth in our Christian lives. That is the focus of verses 5 through 7, which will be our text for the morning. But the reason why I began reading back in verse 1 is because verse 5 begins with the phrase, for this very reason. Notice it there. Your translation may word it a little differently, but it basically says the same thing. But also for this very reason. Peter is basing his exhortation in verses 5 through 7 on what he just said in verses 3 and 4. To put the connection together, it goes like this. Because of, because of all that God has supplied for us to be able to be victorious, the only proper response is to grow and excel and move forward and progress in our Christian lives. It is completely unacceptable to be indifferent. It is completely unacceptable to be self-satisfied. In fact, notice the phrase here in verse 5, giving all diligence. Or some of your translations say, make every effort. You could paraphrase that, paraphrase that by saying, give your best. Give your utmost. That is an exhortation to maximum effort. This reminds me of how the Apostle Paul described the Christian life in Philippians chapter 3 to cause us to greater appreciate, or to appreciate in a greater way Peter's exhortation here. Let's go back and spend a little time in Philippians chapter 3. Go back to the left to the letter of Paul to the church at Philippi called Philippians. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3. It is clear... And if it is not clear to you, it will be clear by the end of this morning. It is clear that both Peter and Paul understood that salvation is not the end, it's the beginning. I say that to emphasize the point to counter what we so easily think. Namely, it's so easy to get complacent once God has saved you. It's so easy to get comfortable and apathetic because, after all, your eternal destiny is taken care of. Your eternal destiny is set, so just relax. But that's the wrong attitude. Or, along the same lines, it's so easy to be satisfied once someone you have been praying for or working with or witnessing to comes to know the Lord. But that's not the end result we're after. That's only the beginning. 
Both Peter and Paul understood that. So here in Philippians 3, in verses 10 through 16, Paul describes his ongoing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. Paul, probably the the greatest Christian ever to live, here in Philippians 3, confesses that he had not arrived, even though he had been pursuing his sanctification for 30 years by the time he wrote this letter. And beloved, herein, I believe, is one of the keys to spiritual growth. Spiritual growth begins with the awareness that we have not arrived. There is still a lot more that we need to learn biblically, theologically, doctrinally. There is still a lot more that we need to learn to practice in our Christian lives in the area of sanctification. There are still areas of our lives that need to be changed. Oh, blessed discontent which propels me to spiritual growth. In Matthew 5, 6, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Paul hungered for more. Paul thirsted for more. And that comes out here in Philippians chapter 3. In verse 10, he says this, That I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Back in verse 8, Paul said that he had come to know Christ. He knew Christ. He knew Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. But he wanted to know him more thoroughly and more intimately and more deeply, more profoundly. That's what he's describing here in verse 10. That I may know him. Paul understood that when we come to know Christ in salvation, that begins a relationship in which we continue growing in knowing Him. At salvation, our knowledge of Christ is shallow. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. Paul realized that his knowledge of Christ was by no means complete. So he says here in verse 10, That I may know Him. This reminds me of what the psalmist said in Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so longs my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. In Psalm 63, 1 and 2, David wrote, O God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water to see your power and your glory. In Exodus thirty-three thirteen, Moses said, Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your way that I may know you. Moses knew God. What's, what is he saying? What was he praying? Moses knew God, but he wanted to know Him more intimately, more deeply, more profoundly. That's exactly what Paul is saying here in verse 10 when he says that I may know Him. 
Paul wanted to experience more of Christ's resurrection power every day of his life as he conquered sin and grew in Christ's likeness. The last phrase here in verse 10 is being conformed to his death. Paul seems to be saying, I want to become like Christ in his death because he passed through death into a new life. And that's what I want to be happening in my life continually. It's just another way of expressing his desire for growth and intimacy with Christ. That's what Paul wanted in his life. He knew he couldn't attain perfection in this life, but let me tell you something. He still reached for it. In verse 11, he says, If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What does he mean by this statement? Since the context is dealing with spiritual growth and maturity and perfection, I believe that Paul is saying here that he gave his all to the task of sanctification with the goal of achieving what would be done for him when he was resurrected. In other words, Paul knew that once he was resurrected, he would be glorified and perfect. But he didn't just sit back and wait for it to happen. He made all the spiritual progress he could, even to the point of trying to attain to the perfect condition he would have once he's resurrected. Of course, he knew that he would never completely attain that status in this life, but he gave it his all. That leads to his next statement in verse 12. He says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. This is a remarkable statement, beloved. Even after 30-some years of spiritual growth, Paul said, not that I have already attained. You know what that tells us? There's always room for more growth. Always room for more progress. That's what Paul is describing here in verse 12 when he says, I press on that I may lay hold. There's no passivity in that statement, is there? Paul gave maximum effort. He wasn't content with where he was at in his spiritual progress. He always wanted more. Alec Matier wrote this, quote, No obsessive hatred ever dogged the heels of its adversary with more tenacity than the Apostle Paul held to the target of Christian perfection, end quote. It is sad the number of Christians who are satisfied with their spiritual progress. They're simply content to limp along spiritually. Once they've had their Sunday morning sermon, they've they've had enough for the week. They've been challenged enough, exhorted enough. That kind of complacency was nauseating to Paul. He had what Warren Wiersbe has called a sanctified dissatisfaction. That's a great phrase, a sanctified dissatisfaction. As I said earlier, in one sense, that is the starting point for spiritual growth. Paul pressed on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus had laid hold of him. In other words, Paul was pursuing that for which Christ pursued him. And what was that purpose? Why did Christ pursue Paul? 
Why did Christ pursue you? Why does he pursue you and me? We don't have to guess the answer. Scripture is clear. Christ lays hold of us to make us like himself. So Paul is saying here in this verse, I am giving maximum effort to being like Christ since that's the purpose for which he laid hold of me. And let me tell you something. Paul never, ever lost his focus. In verse 13, he says this, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, or I do not count myself to have uh, laid hold of it or attained it. I haven't arrived. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. This was Paul's focus. Any athlete knows that it's easy to get distracted away from your goal. And I mention an athlete because it's obvious that the terminology, the, the phraseology that Paul is using here is, is connected to athletic competition. Any athlete knows it's easy to get sidetracked from your goal. Paul refused to let that happen. For 30-some years, the number one issue in his life was spiritual growth. Can you say that? Honestly, can you say that? Paul was one-dimensional in his passion. He wanted to be like Christ. That was the one thing that dominated his life. He pursued this one thing. But I want you to notice something fascinating about this verse. The one thing has two sides to it. A negative side and a positive side. First, he says, forgetting those things which are behind. Listen, if you want to run the race successfully... If you want to fight the fight successfully, if you want to win in the battle, then you have to forget the past, good and bad. The race is out in front of you, not behind you. So don't hold on to the past good or the past bad. If you hold on to the good, then the tendency is to coast on past victories and past successes and past progress. If anyone could have coasted, it would have been Paul. It would have been so easy for him to look back to all that God had accomplished through him over the past 30 years and to simply check out of the present race. Now, there's nothing wrong with fond memories of the past. Certainly, there's nothing wrong with looking back and thanking God for what he has done for you and in you and through you. But the focus is on the race right now. Don't feel like you've earned the right to retire from the Christian life. You haven't. If you focus on the past good, you'll get behind in the race. Self-satisfaction is deadly to spiritual progress, so don't hold on to the past even if it's good. If you do, you'll slow the pace. But then there's the other side of the coin. Notice it here in this verse. If you hold on to the bad, it will paralyze you. So many Christians, so many Christians are debilitated by sins of the past, failures of the past, past hurts, past grudges. Beloved, let go of all of that. Let go of it. Forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. That's the way Paul lived his life. 
Think about this. He could have allowed his past to completely debilitate him. After all, he had murdered Christians. Can you imagine Paul showing up in a small group gathering, a prayer meeting, a Bible study or something, and the group's going to gather together, and they're going to celebrate the Lord's table. They're going to celebrate communion. And there across the room sits a lady who's a widow because Paul had had her husband murdered. Can you imagine how paralyzing that could have been? The guilt of all that had to be overwhelming. He consented to the stoning of the dear, beloved Stephen, the very first Christian martyr. But he knew that by the grace of God, he was forgiven. And he knew that God wanted him to forget the past and reach forward to the future. So that's the way he lived. He kept moving ahead, charging ahead. He always wanted to learn more, grow more, practice more. He was never satisfied because he knew the goal was Christ-likeness. And so he says in verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press toward the goal. Look at the intensity of that. I bear down on the goal. I reach for the goal of the upward call. That seems to be a synonym for glorification or perfection. This was Paul's focus. This was his pursuit. This was his aim. That's why he never got self-satisfied or complacent. Now let's pause here for just a moment. In light of what Paul says here in Philippians 3, and in light of Peter's exhortation in our text to give maximum effort, honestly ask yourself a question. Look at your Christian life And ask yourself if you are honestly giving maximum effort to grow in the Christian life. Honestly. What steps are you taking? Are you just skating along? Just coasting? What what are you doing? Or to say it another way, what are your disciplines or your practices that would prove you are giving genuine effort to spiritual growth. You see, the sad fact is that many Christians simply coast along in life without really giving any or much effort to grow spiritually. Sure, they want it to happen. Sure, they do. If you ask them if they want to grow spiritually, they will say yes. But they don't do anything about it. If you were to ask me if I would like to be a concert pianist, I would say yes. I would. I would love to be able to play beautiful and powerful and complex and moving pieces of music on the piano. But I don't do anything about it. I don't take any lessons. I don't practice. I don't study piano. Therefore, you could justifiably question if I really want to be a concert pianist. In the same way, it is valid to question the sincerity of Christians who say they want to grow spiritually, but they don't do anything about it. They just hope it happens. They want to grow if it just happens naturally. They want to grow if it happens by osmosis. But they don't make any effort. That is altogether different 
than the way Paul and Peter describe the proper approach to the Christian life. With that in mind, let's go back to our text in 2 Peter 1 and walk our way through it in the time we have remaining. 2 Peter chapter 1. So here in verse 5, Peter says we are to give all diligence. We are to make every effort to grow in the Christian life. We are to give it our best. He says we are to add to our faith. We are to supplement our faith. In other words, our faith in Christ is the starting point. Our faith in Christ is the foundation. We we can't grow spiritually if we don't know Christ. And the only way to know Christ is by faith. And that's why Peter begins with this assumption or foundation of faith. And that's why he says that we are to supplement our faith. And the first specific he mentions here in verse 5, when he says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Some translations say goodness. Others, moral excellence. This word describes someone who excels in life in his or her character. This describes someone who stands out. This describes someone who is unique in his or her character. This reminds me of the question Jesus asked in the Sermon on the Mount when in Matthew 5, 47, in the context of of where he says, well, anybody can be kind to those who are kind to them, and anyone you know, can be good to people who are good to them. But what do you do more than others? What do you do more than others? Is there anything in your life or mine that shows that Jesus has made a difference? Is there anything that stands out? We should be known for virtue or moral excellence. The second characteristic that Peter mentions here is knowledge. He says in verse 5, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge. It is commendable to have a childlike faith. We know that from Jesus' words. But understand that there is no virtue in an ignorant faith. Childlike faith and ignorant faith are not the same things. Part of growing in the Lord is growing in knowledge. Growing in the knowledge of His Word. In Hosea 4, 6, God said, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. When Peter closes this letter, over in chapter 3, verse 18, he will say, in one of the last things he ever said or wrote, (coughs) Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So knowledge is something we need to add to our virtue. But that's still not all. Notice that Peter continues. Verse 6, he says, To knowledge, and he's just continuing his his list, add to knowledge self-control. Self-control is a fundamental aspect of the Christian life, beloved. We can't just go with our feelings. We can't just go along with whatever we feel like doing or whatever we don't feel like doing. Tragically, some Christians don't understand this. 
or they don't accept this. They just live their lives by their desires, by their impulses, by whatever comes naturally, by their feelings. So if they feel like being kind to people on a given day, they will be kind. If they don't feel like it, then they won't be kind. If they've had a bad day, then they take it, on, take it out on others around them. If they've had a bad week, they take it out on others around them because they have absolutely no concept of self-control. They just go with whatever their feelings dictate. If they feel like doing what the Lord says they ought to do in a given situation, they'll do it. And if they don't feel like it, they just won't do it. How different that is from the way the Christian life is described in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul said, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. In other words, I make my body do what it ought to do even if I don't feel like it. That is critical in the Christian life. Self-control is key. If you don't, listen, if you don't exercise self-control, here's what will happen. Then yourself will control you. And yourself isn't very good, nor is myself. Our self is self-centered and self-focused and self-consumed and selfish. That's why we have to exercise self-control. According to Galatians 5.23, self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Therefore, as we walk in the Spirit... As we grow in Christ, this character trait will be produced in us more and more by the Holy Spirit, which is encouraging to know that even though we are responsible to exercise self-control, it doesn't all depend on us. The Holy Spirit will build self-control into our lives. The next word Peter mentions is perseverance. Notice there in verse 6, add to your knowledge self-control, to self-control, and some translations say patience or endurance or perseverance. This is patient endurance. This is, maybe your translation says steadfastness. Add to your self-control steadfastness. Life isn't always easy. You know that. We face sickness. We face mistreatment from friends or enemies. Financial pressures death of loved ones, heartbreak from various sources. We face discouragement in life. That is why we need this quality. That's why we need this character trait. We can't throw up our hands and quit when things get tough. We have to hang in there. We have to be faithful with patient endurance. And that's why Peter says, add to your self-control perseverance. And then the last word in verse 6 is godliness. Notice, add to your knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness. A godly person is someone who seeks to please God in every facet of his or her life. This describes someone who wants to please and honor God in every circumstance that comes into your life. That is a truly godly person. God brings prosperity into your life, you seek to honor him with prosperity. If God brings adversity into your life, you seek to honor the Lord in adversity. God brings success into your life, you seek to honor the Lord in success. 
God brings trial into your life, you seek to honor God in trials. That's what it means to be godly. This word describes a Christian who obeys God in his word and therefore has a God-likeness quality in his or her life. It's when we do what God tells us to do in adversity, in prosperity, in success, in failure. It's when we do what God tells us to do that we look the most like him. And that's this word, godliness. But Peter's not done. Notice verse 7. Add to your godliness brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness describes a relational kindness toward one another in the family of God. It describes a heart of affection and a willingness to sacrifice for one another. It's a family term. Now I know, and it's sad you have to say this, but I know that not all brothers love each other, okay? And I know that not all brothers get along, but this character trait assumes that there is a unique bond between brothers. I know that my brother and I have this kind of relationship, and we would do anything for each other. That's the kind of love Peter is describing by this word. Add Add to your godliness brotherly kindness. And then one more. And to brotherly kindness, add love. So Peter caps off his list by saying, and to brotherly kindness, love. This begs the question, what's the difference between this term, love, and the previous term, brotherly kindness? Here's the difference. The previous term implies that there is a relationship and that there should be brotherly kindness in that relationship. There's a sense in which this term, however, the last one, goes even further by saying that we ought to love others even if there is no relationship there. Assuming you have good relationships in the family of God, it's easy to see how you could display brotherly kindness, right? I mean, if you have good relationships, good friendships in the family of God, then you could naturally display this brotherly kindness. But what about loving those with whom we have no relationship, no connection? That's even more commendable, which is why Peter caps off his list with this character trait. This kind of... This kind of love is the pinnacle of all virtues. That's why 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, And now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Colossians 3, 14 says, And over all these virtues, and Paul in that passage has also listed a lot of virtues, just like Peter does here. And he says in Colossians 3, 14, Over all these virtues, Put on love. Or you could almost paraphrase that. Over top of all these virtues, throw a huge blanket of love which binds them together in perfect unity. Peter already said this back in 1 Peter 4.8 which says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins. Love is the pinnacle. Love is the summit. It is the superlative. Let me explain how that works. If you have knowledge, which is mentioned earlier in this list, if you have knowledge but no love, then you will probably probably be arrogant. 
or harsh or abrasive. Sadly, there are Christians like that. A lot of knowledge, accurate knowledge, good knowledge, no love, and they're arrogant or harsh or abrasive. That's why Paul warned in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge without love is dangerous. And love without knowledge is dangerous. Which is why Peter mentions both as important in our spiritual growth. So Peter's list begins with faith and ends with love, which shouldn't surprise us. Those are the two most essential aspects of the Christian life. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Faith and love are the two most important, but, but, please hear this, that doesn't mean that the other character traits in this list are unimportant. They're obviously important, or God would not have, God the Holy Spirit would not have prompted Peter to put them in this list. All of these things are important to the Lord. And He wants to see these things in our lives in an increasing manner. So He says, add, add, add. Don't stop adding. It's crucial, beloved, that we give all diligence to our Christian growth so that we don't stop adding. Let's bow together in closing. And I want to ask you to do this as you bow your head and close your eyes. I want you to think through this list. In case you can't remember it, I'll just kind of walk through it again. And as we think through the list in closing, ask the Lord to maybe point out in your life which one of these things, or two, is or are most important in your life. You see, it may not be the same for all of us. Maybe for some, there's the, the, the issue of the, the need to grow in knowledge. For others, self-control. To someone else, perseverance or godliness, brotherly kind, whatever. So just think through the list, laying your life before the Lord, saying, Lord, where do I need to add? What, what do I need to make sure to add? We read, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, That's moral excellence. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. Whichever of these is lacking in us, we need to do some math. We need to add. We need to do some adding. Father, we know that these things, these character traits are very important to you because not only do we see them here in this list, but we see them scattered throughout your word, held up as important by you, valuable by you. And we always want whatever is important to you to be important to us. So as we think through these character traits that your Holy Spirit guided Peter to put in this second epistle, may we be humble and teachable and open to where we're falling short, where where we are lacking, so that we would do as Peter says here, give all diligence, 
or make every effort or give our utmost to add whatever needs to be added by way of character, Christ-like character in our lives. And in closing, Father, we want to pray for anyone who is here among us who does not belong to you, does not belong to your Son, Jesus Christ, who cannot really call you Father, even though this message is not, was not directed toward them or that issue. May your Holy Spirit be pleased to use something from our service, maybe something from a song that was sung, a prayer that was offered, scripture that was read, comment that was made. May your Spirit be pleased to use that to give understanding and conviction to the man or woman who is present with us without a relationship with Jesus Christ. So that today that man or woman would come to know Christ personally as Lord and Savior and begin to grow in Him, in whose marvelous name we pray. Amen.